Hi, I'm Joe Kadravik. I'm the CEO of Cobalt Blue. We are developing the Broken Hill Cobalt Project, the world's largest primary cobalt project. Um, and uh, we are looking to bring that into development by 2025, uh, looking to make a high-grade cobalt sulfate product and be a top five project ex-Africa in the world. Joe, good to see you, mate. Uh, it's been a while. Um, actually, Merlin and uh, Andrew caught up, uh, I think, last week, week before. Great, gone down a storm. It's helped people understand a little bit more about your project technically, but also a little bit about how these things get put together. So that was a great session. But I want to catch up with you before the end of the year, see how the pilot a plant is uh, going and what sort of timings we can expect in terms of um, you know, information into the market about what you're doing there. So how are things there? Look, we're um, we're basically on time for on our earlier guidance. And just to give um, the listeners some idea of what's coming up for us, we've transitioned now um, into a demonstration scale plant, which is a large 24-7 operation. Um, in terms of scale, we're looking to extract about 3,000 tonne of ore and make north of 3,000 kilos of various various products. Now, that as a benchmark has never been um, um, attempted before by a cobalt greenfield project, so that'll be a very large demonstration of proof. It'll also give us an ability to ship um, pre-qualification samples, so that's also important for us to get acceptance into the industry. In terms of um, what's coming up, we've started fieldwork. Um, I'm probably announce in the new year um, some first photos of what that means. We're moving some dirt. We're preparing effectively for the cut to go underground because we are doing an underground extraction. We expect on current timeline to have first ore in February, and that'll be feeding across to the plant, which should be running in about a March timeframe. On the equipment side, really happy to say that our autoclave is now on the water, so it's being shipped internationally to us. That'll arrive this stage, possibly the first day or two in February. Um, we've also got a furnace, a major, uh, another major piece of equipment coming, again, um, in late January delivery time. So what does all that mean? It means at the demonstration plant site, we'll be receipting and starting to bolt on these, uh, this equipment. Uh, in conjunction with that, there's thousands of smaller pieces of equipment coming in uh, and good, looking good for a construct and commission in March and then effectively steady state from there. Um, may surprise some viewers, but we're really only aiming to run the thing for about 16 to 18 weeks. Um, that's on a 24-7 basis, more than ample to, um, to demonstrate the proof of concept towards um, a bankable study. Is that long enough? You're doing all this work, getting assembling kit from all around the world, building it, and then you're only running it for a short period of time. What's that going to tell us? Matthew, I'm sorry to say this live, but it's all about size. Size matters. So if you, if you build something large, it doesn't really matter whether you run it effectively beyond two or three months, you need scale proof. So it's really about um, a 24-7, as I said, consistent operation. It's about looking at representativity of different parts of the ore body to make sure that we effectively are capturing a broader sample. Uh, and it's about trying to make what we're seeing is two, three, four different kinds of commercial variants of an MHP or a sulfate, which, which is the feedback that we're getting today. So yeah, it's about scale. Um, and a metallurgist will tell you once you've run that at 20 to 30 days steady state, you've generally proven the concept at that scale. So how does that help the guys on the ground in terms of, you know, does that inform the, the need to either blend the ore or the fact that you optimise the plant to be able to process, you know, I don't know, an average grade, no matter what, what you feed in the front end? I mean, I mean I, what's it look like technically? Well, what we're doing is effectively trying to, to prove what, 
we know the drill core and the small scale saying to us is that the the cobalt's hosted in the pyrite. The mineral is, is, is pyrite, FES2, and the cobalt substitution in the pyrite is extremely uh, consistent across the ore body. So what we're really doing is just hoping as we come in um, or looking to validate the idea that it's a consistency of substitution, uh, uh, the machinery will run it irrespective of whether it's a higher or low grade pyrite sample. That's okay. And once it's past the concentration state, when it's largely pyrite, it, it gets processed effectively doesn't matter what part of the ore body it's in because it's so consistent. The flip side is there's so little um, um, negative or deleterious uh, elements there that we don't have to filter out high and low grade bad patches. Effectively, it flows all the way through. So, and what does that allow you to go and talk to the market about? Because I, I noticed you've been hanging around like um, with um, some quite important people recently, like the Korean president, for instance. How does what, what you're going to be able to do there inform those sorts of conversations now and presumably, you know, once you've proved, proved up uh, your, your thesis? So there's, there's probably two um, proofs we need to deliver on. Um, first and foremost, can we make the right product? And the pilot has proven that. So we've dispatched product to um, or are in the process of, of receiving inf- um, feedback from 30-odd um, uh, different partners. There's been probably three or four different select um, corridors of information of what they would like certain type here or there, or there, but they're all really just tweaking an existing chemistry. So we understand what the market needs, and that's a far better position than we were six months ago. We've now created technical relationships, which we're hoping to convert to commercial relationships. So first and foremost, what product are you making and can you make it consistently? And then the second um, uh, information exchange or, or information value is really for the BFS. Have we, have we chosen the right equipment? Uh, is the efficiency of the extraction, is the yield um, um, okay? Is the energy consumption okay? Are the reagents being consumed as per spec? So really, one is an effectiveness measure. Can we make the right product? The other is an efficiency measure. Can we do it with the lowest cost outcome? Right. Okay. And uh, just as a reminder, because I know we talked about it last time, which, which is around, around your economics. So you've got money in the bank at the moment. You're going to get the pilot up and running, you know, do, you know, do the things you just said. Then what? You've got to start making some commercial decisions at that point. So again, run through that just timing for us briefly. Yeah. So look, in terms of money and where we're at today, uh, we we raised, as you'd be aware, in in July. Um, we've got about just over twelve million of that left. The heavy spend, to be fair, is is right here and now. So the heavy spend next couple of months. Um, we have about ten million of options in conversion. Um, which are just on the money at the moment. If they convert, if they convert, we have no more capital raisings between now and, and investment decision making. If they don't, or there's a delay in those conversions, we've got a, a you know single digit amount really ahead of us that we might look in the market for. But that's a Q2 mid mid year decision at, at the earliest. Um, so that's really that the short term. In the longer term, what we're looking at is is to find funders um, and and project partners for. Uh, for the um, for the project, so we started a partner search about three months ago um, through our partnership with Cutfield Freeman. Um, we have just under thirty um, counterparties in the data room, and we're having fairly consistent second and third points of contact now in terms of, well, we understand your project. What are you asking for? What's the next step to get us along that path? In fact. Um, Interestingly enough, in the week coming into Christmas, we have three workshops of three hours each with individual partners across what, what 
what what happens is they bring in their procurement guy, they bring in their uh, some of the technical people, they bring in their finance people, and it's just a, a effectively an unscripted, um, non-binding session where everyone just gets to ask the questions they want, rather than going through these stilted, oh, let's have a weekly catch-up or, 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 or so on and so forth. Um, I think the market, from a partner point of view, understands this project will find a partner in the next six months. I think, it, for me, that's pretty clear. I think we'll have a partner certainly by Q3 next year. And, I, and I'd say, um, in, in my mind, certainly not something that um, um, we're promising it to the market, but that's clear in my mind. But I, I'm very comfortable to say we'll have a partner before FID, which is obviously in, in January or February of the following year. Okay, so that's a really important point, right? Because you've got 30 people um, in the data room and 30 people who, who have received your product and are, are feeding back to you. Um, have there been any dropouts? And the reason I ask is, if I if I look at social media, you know, you've got um, some people talking the narrative of, well, cobalt is irrelevant. It's being substituted out. Uh, it's obsolete. However, what's industry telling you? There, there, there are the odd times when, through my lens, I see a massive um, a difference in the way the commercial market's behaving to the investment market, and this is one of those times. Um, not only is cobalt baked into the chemistry of these um, cathodes, particularly for the larger EV batteries, um, the the sheer uh, pace, the hectic pace of our commercial conversations reflect that uh, partners want to commit to that offtake today. Um, and two years ago, that offtake would have been one or two years because the market felt that there was an abundance of cobalt. And to your point, hey, maybe I don't need it in years three and four. So two years ago, we would have signed a one or two year offtake agreement, just enough to get us into production. Today, those conversations, and I mentioned this to you last time, are in how much of my gigafactory can you supply? And today, the average duration of what's what's been sought is typically five to seven years. Um, so it's time to put up or shut up for the EV industry. These um, plans have to be in fruition by 25, 26 at the latest in order for them to make their 2030 deadlines. And their 2030 targets for most of these EVs are quite strategic deadlines of either eliminating um, internal combustion engine vehicles or materially reducing their presence, but also the, uh, the CO2 standards and the emission standards that governments, the EU and the US government um, put in place will also penalise them if they don't get down that point. So the, the point of recognising there's an extent, existential um, um, threat to the industry is being recognised now and, and the cobalt discussions we're having for offtake reflect that. As does the price. I mean, the price is good at the moment. What's it at? Just remind us. Yeah, so the, the metal price today is around about $33 a pound. Um, the sulphate price is at a premium around 34 bucks. Now, do you recall um, in earlier last year that was 14 15 a pound? Um, and the that's already now above its 30-year average, so that's around about $25 a pound. So um, we're now into that slightly above long-term average um, price, and um, my sense is into next year that will tighten, probably not at the same pace that's happened this year. It's come off a pretty low base, but it'll just increasingly tick along in this, in this range, and that's extremely helpful um, you know, in terms of uh, you know, our, our partner search process. Well, what's your ASIC, remind me? I'm sorry? What's your ASIC? What are you producing at? Oh, sorry, the all-in sustain. So the all-in sustain, uh, we're running at 12 bucks US a pound. That's for the sulfates. That's 
effectively the metal equivalent product. Um, and then there's the MHP is around nine bucks a pound. And as I said, the spot's running at 33. So you, you're getting a pretty fantastic margin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're making money at 30, 33, 34. I mean, do you, what, what, what do you, I know you say it's going to tighten. What, what does that mean for you in terms of where the price goes? Do, does it just keep, keep on going because of the people's uh, perception of, you know, DRC not yet in position to um, be able to offer or guarantee the fact that it is ethical uh, cobalt that they're producing? What I'm hearing in the industry is that we are getting more um, um, production coming into the market. The, 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 a couple of the, the DRC mines, Matunda for one, which mothballed starting to come in. So there will be more of a linear response in the price. I think it's probably set where it is today, give or take for the next six months. And then gradually as these forces come in, it'll pick up. Now, I don't wish, as, even as an in, incoming cobalt producer, I don't wish for a disorderly price. So in my mind, you start ticking up above the $40 uh, a pound where we were only a few years ago, which is, you know, that's it's knocking on 100,000 US a tonne. You start to create um, um, behaviours which I think ultimately are negative to the industry. So I'm happy for it to tick along where it is. Uh, I think it shows the scarcity value and importantly, the duration that that, that price enjoys will show that cobalt is is an incumbent uh, EV metal for at least the next decade. But tell me this: you talk about you know behaviours which are, are, are not positive for the for, for cobalt. Um, but isn't the pressure being applied by OEMs in terms of being able to track whether blockchain or whatever uh, and issue certificates about the origin of, of of the cobalt? Aren't those sorts of pressures, along with probably the the, the conversations you may have been not having with the Korean president and trade minister? Won't that sort things out in the DRC? Won't, won't it become less of an issue? In which case, you know, do, do we get concerned if the prices do go high that we're, we're getting um, you know, a flood of product in the market and that's going to maybe affect uh, pricing? I mean, how, how, do you, how do you see that dynamic working? I think the technology is... There's less step changes in the technology which cause threat to, in, in this case, the cobalt consumption. I think we're getting now where cathodes are in the 622 range for NCM. NCA is an alternative technology which is already in place. That's more akin to an 811. But I think the step changes from here means that the signalling downstream from the industry is there. It's all about volume and quality. Um, and volume in the sense of... Um, uh, how much of my portfolio of automotive production am I going to commit to EVs? And then within that EV range, what will be a, a small hybrid or what will be a BEV? Um, and what we're seeing at the moment is a number of the larger automotives, particularly in the EU, are taking matters into their own hands um, and have set up um, strategic procurement uh, offices, which report often directly to the CEO or, or, or to the COO, and they're there to give strategic optionality for uh, raw materials procurement. What we've just seen, um, and, and the visit of the Korean president to Australia has, has borne out, is that where the EV players aren't uh, taking matters into their own hands, then their battery um, uh, maker um, upstream partners are doing that. So now we're seeing the case where the, um, where the Korean industry is lobbying and lobbying quite heavily their own government to create uh, or to remove um, hurdles for uh, creation of uh, critical mineral supply chains between Australia and Korea. Um, and 
what we will see, and I'm pretty confident of this, is further economic incentives towards that. So governments actually getting into the business of, of, of subsidising or creating, um, you know, economies for, for those participants. Are we starting to see some competitive tension here? Is, is Korea taking, whether it be driven by industry or, or by government, stepping in where the Chinese have uh, vacated a space while they're having a little bit of um, a, a, you know, a tiff with the Australian government? Yeah, so look, I, I, I think you're, you're, you're right on some of the elements, but I think um, what I'll do is put a different slant or waiting on, on, on what's going on. Um, Korean, the Korean battery industry has either had their fingers burnt or are reticent to do and or are reticent to do more African investment. So where they're shut out of some jurisdictions, they still have ability to access others. But in general speaking, the rule of law has not been kind to non-Chinese participation in African extraction. Um, so the Koreans are shopping around for new sources of, of, um, of these critical minerals. I'll use a broader term. It's really clear to us at Cobalt Blue from our discussions that there's two jurisdictions which are blue ribbon for Korean uh, downstream um, customers, and that's Australia and Canada. So blue ribbon in the sense of rule of law, but also in, in the prospectivity of the mineral bodies that they hold. Um, so what we're seeing is, is a, a reaction that the Koreans are saying, look, I, I need to source this stuff. Bear in mind the Korean battery makers supply probably 60 to 65% of all lithium-ion batteries, EV and, and, and the like, today are under a Korean um, intellectual property or battery maker. So they're the lion's share, but they're crowded out in, or crowded down into this very small slice of active supply chain. So what, I'm, what we're seeing is fascinating right now. They're using policy as well as their own commercial um, uh, funding to create a new industry in Australia, and, and I suspect in Canada as well. And, and I'll just give you a simple example, which was told to me this week. Um, it may surprise some listeners, but iron ore was a strategic uh, metal for the Australian government in the 40s and 50s. And so what the government did is restrict any export of iron ore because it was deemed in the national interest to keep it. Um, what happened in the late or in the mid 50s and beyond was a bunch of explorers and, and smaller companies successfully pegged massive resources of, of iron ore, then lobbied the government to restrict its embargo status. The same time, technological changes such as larger scale equipment, drag lines, um, box, uh, larger scale sh uh, shipping equipment, rail equipment came into play, which enabled that extraction. Along came the Japanese steel industry and said, we'll offer you long day the contracts. So no longer in this opaque market that was iron ore, no longer would you have to guess year to year your volumes or your, or your pricing, we'll give you a long dated contract. And so Japanese long-dated contracts, US dollars on the nose, Australian resources, um, government policy changes, spotting the similarities to today, it's all about creating a new industry. So critical minerals, the definition is broader than just battery materials, clearly, but what they want to do is offer us that long-dated incentive of contract, government policies which basically get rid of any red tape and allow you to fast-track your, your, um, your production, uh, indeed, government help, government assistance in that process. So, and the technology today, unlike the, the, the iron ore example I gave you, 
that acknowledge today is actually part of the risk factor because most of us in the critical minerals game have innovative processing or flow sheets. And that's the risk that the lenders are reticent to, to lend to, but that the governments can help support. And indeed, the offtake partners, in this case, the Koreans, need to do their due diligence and assistance. So that's part of the reason why my demo plant, you asked before, why is it so big and why are you turning it off so quickly? The reason it's so big is it has to be big to prove this up because we're part of an industry that's coming into being. And you watch this space, the next five to 10 years in Australia and Canada and these jurisdictions will explode for these opportunities. And I would ask people also, that's a great, great explanation. I would ask people also watch the interview with Marilyn and, and, and Andre. Uh, as well, because you put those two things together, you get a real good sense of you know what, what it is and how it is you're putting this thing together. But I want to talk about one aspect here, just conscious of time, one aspect of um, what you're doing, which we, we've talked about on occasion, but not given much time to, which is domestically, Queensland government, you've been talking to them and the potential there is quite extraordinary if you can get it right. So have those conversations with regards to tailings and remediation advanced since we last spoke. Yes, um, thank you. Glad you asked the question. The, um, so just to give a, a quick recap, the, the Queensland government is looking to, at the same time, um, commercialise metals that are, are locked in their tailing stamps, but also clean up and create an environmentally um, sustainable outcome. So there's a win-win there's a um, initiative there. Um, we announced in March of this year um, a cobalt and waste streams program. We've talked about that off and on on, on, the, on the program. Uh, effectively, we're targeting cobalt, copper, and the occasional gold in pyrite, pyrotite up there, which is our core metal, our core mineral in, in Broken Hill. So we have this plant ready to go in terms of test work. Um, very happy to say we've just signed a cooperation uh, MOU with the Queensland government. And that enables us to receive samples underneath their banner. Um, and also very happy to say that the first test work is on its way. So, um, sorry, test sample is on its way. So we should have sample shortly, which will be just in the new year. And the same facilities that are currently uh, processing our own project will, will soon be testing others. Um, very excited because the opportunity set up there is two or three times bigger in terms of contained metal than what we have in the ground. And on top of the scale comes the cost benefits of extracting something that's already at surface. So really, really excited about the opportunity. And um, I, I guess also very heartened by the fact that we're running with the government as opposed to against them. So they want us to win to create those outcomes we talked about. And, and so how much, I know you, you talked about the financing available to obviously get the, the pilot plant uh, up, up and running um, and you know, and deliver that side of the business. But with the tailings remediation component, obviously the great thing about tailings, it's already at surface. The cost of of um, getting out the ore is is de minimis, right? Um, obviously the grades are going to be be lower, but um, you know, the, the Queensland government are asking you to do, do a job there. So when do you get a, a sense of what the economics will be and what's the process between now and then of trying to understand that? Obviously, a little sample now is a great start, but then what? Yeah, look, there's, a, there's, there's some lifting to do between proving on a, on a small scale some positive test work and getting into, well, um, a commercial outcome. The lifting requires that the counterparty, in, in some cases that'll be private companies who have tenure over those, that land, other cases, it'll be abandoned 
uh, minds where the gov- where the uh, no one has tenure and it's in the government's hands. So lifting is the counterparty. Um, it also involves the EPA in Queensland. So to, to understand what their view on these tails dams are. So um, as long as all elements of the government are aligned, that should work. But are they? So we need to test whether the EPA has the same view on tailings remediation that other departments do. Uh, for example, what's the view on, on metals extraction? If, if in a monsoonal Queensland every year you flood uh, the associate river systems with, with leached metals, then certainly, or I should say, you'd think that a key part of the rehab uh, to be done is to remove that leashing metal. And that's exactly what the, our business model is about. So you'd think that we would actually get um, some sort of premium for the work we do. But nevertheless, um, there's, there's some heavy lifting commercially, understanding um, how to go about deploying the equipment and the overall infrastructure is important. So if we carve out just the tailing stand, you know, just a portion of the overall mining site, um, is, that our, is that our operational area? Do we, how do we get access to it from it? How do we plumb in um, power, et cetera, et cetera? So you are at a, an FS uh, um, type of challenge ahead of you, even though the elements within the FS are minimal because, as you say, there's no mining. Geology tend, tends to be very simple. And the upstream, the, the communition, the, the, um, the basic materials handling is, is largely done. But there are still those challenges. But yeah, they're, they're commercial challenges. The, um, the IP that we have is a key that unlocks the door. But then you still got to have the, the, the commercial presence to, to execute. And is there a team allocated to that? Because obviously, um, that sounds like there's a lot of, like I say, a lot of heavy lifting in terms of lots of different types of conversations, lots of groups to come together, but all with hopefully a, a, a common goal in the end, which is obviously to re- remediate these huge tailings. Well, I mean, we're talking a lot, aren't we? I mean, what, what's, the, what's the sort of quantum of tailings? Oh, look, the, on, on public data, and I suspect the private data is a couple of times bigger than these numbers, on public data, there's somewhere between two and 300,000 tonne of cobalt sitting at surface there. Right. That that would be meaningful to you if you were to be able to uh, get even a portion of that. Um, okay, so 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 just on the on the team front. So the, the have you allocated people, time, money to that, or is that as you you know, you know what the focus is? Pilot plant, get it nailed, and then we'll come back to this. Or how does it work? Yeah, so that we have an allocation of resources, both people and and funding. Um, but you're right, we can't. Uh, cannibalize our focus on the on the Broken Hill project. So there is a balancing act to be done. Um, put very basically, once the pilot plant starts um, shutting down, let's say Q3 next year, then I'd like that plant and equipment then to be tasked with a second project. So in the near term, it'll be small scale work, which doesn't interrupt the flow in, in, in the plant, but it'll be uh, resourced by people doing those negotiations to get the test work done. Um, to get, um, uh, once the test work's done, to then start the commercial side of the negotiation in terms of what the next steps are. The next steps will necessarily be larger scale test work. So you go from a scoping study to akin to a PFS, and that might include uh, a few tonne of material to be processed. But in parallel with that, we're looking effectively at all those other modifying factors, typically about a dozen, that that a mining project has. The difference is that of those 12, those 12 modifying factors, probably only seven or eight really count to any great degree in this project. Okay. So just for, I'm, I'm going to finish off here because I'm just, and also for people who perhaps are just coming into the story of uh, uh, anew, um, 
Give us an idea of a timeline uh, for next year, because obviously FID is the moment most people look for, and you know it's quite good for existing shareholders because that's usually an uptick at that at that point. Assuming you get your finance in place and assuming price stays where it is, remind us of timeline and and maybe the um, the economic study. Just what are the what are the highlight numbers there that people should be tuning into? Okay, so in the near term. Uh, the, the large-scale focus for us is, is the demo plant, so there'll be a combination of field activities. We'll be announcing those in January, February. Um, we'll be then bolting the, uh, the plant together and operating in, in late Q1 and running effectively from steady state Q, uh, Q2. Um, in parallel with that, we're running all of our other um, environmental and state-significant development studies, so the approval side will run in parallel. So there's a lot of work, it might surprise um, some that there's a lot of work done just on data capture to make sure that there's a baseline um, for the ultimate mining approval. Uh, and then uh, we're also up to the thick of it in terms of the partner search. So um, we've asked for partner in expressions of interest by Christmas. So we're pretty much there now. Um, with our view that we'd like to buy mid-year next year to, to have a signed, sealed and delivered outcome. One point I'll make on the partner search, as we get closer to BFS, the more people will knock on our door to, to have a look in. We're simply too early in, in, in general terms for some of the uh, equity funds, the private equity funds, the public equity funds, and so on, who tend to like a, product, uh, a project at BFS or closer to BFS. So time will be our friend, and there'll be a lot, lot more appeal for the project in terms of um, due diligence, I think, come middle of the year. Um, by, by end of next year, we'll have a, uh, an FS in hand. Um, that will be publicly released, I suspect, in early 2023 once it's gone through the board. The same token, we want to have our financing done, which is what we've just talked about, and all our approvals. So we should have been in a position to do a final investment decision probably mid-Q1 next year by the time all that lines up. Um, looking forward, um, we then have a definitive study, which is a fancy name of saying a detailed cost study. So you turn a, a bankable document into contractor-ready documents. A bit of a, the, the parallel is when you, when you um, uh, renovate your home, you apply for permission. In Australia, it's called a development consent or, or approval. And then, be, but before you go to market for your contractor, you build, you, you have to supply contractor-ready docs. So that's that period we'll go through. That's no more than six months, but in parallel, we'll start some of our basic earth and other construction. So we'll have Construction will underway second half 23, um, two-year build and probably 18 months to first commissioning at the front end. So we should be at steady state at the mid to back end of 25. Um, and that's, as I mentioned before, that's a, that's a real sweet spot in terms of the industry um, uh, demand cycle. Brilliant. And, and just to again remind us of the, of the actual numbers, that's the timeline. So the, the numbers, if we'll go oh, to sorry, yes. the plan. So the, so the capital numbers we're looking at is about 550 Aussie pre-production capex. Um, I will say again that um, for 17,000 tonne of cobalt sulphate, that's about a third to a quarter of any comparable project in the world. Um, and that's what makes this project really exciting. So if you're just there for the cobalt and you need it for particularly for your offtake requirements, this is a very attractive investment. So 550 Aussie um, for that output. And then the all-in sustain, you mentioned earlier, around about $12 a pound for the sulphate, the, the metal equivalent. Um, and at this stage, we're looking at offtake if you just take spot as a central tendency and then take a, a high-low case in the case of a floor or a cap, spot at 33 with maybe a plus or minus 10 to 15% cap and floor, 
would be today's sort of um, you know typical a atypical offtake, uh, shorter term offtake. Longer term, there'll be a little bit of adjustment on that. Okay. Well, look, um, Joe, congratulations on this year. Thank you for the overview on the, on the macros. It was nice to sort of see what's going on. Industry says we, we need cobalt, um, which, which, which is comforting. Um, let's see how you get on next year. Obviously, it sounds like a busy, busy year. Um, lots to prove, lots to show. Uh, stay in touch. Thank you. I, I'm, I'm very hopeful we'll be a vastly different company by middle of next year because of all those factors. But, yeah, let's stay in touch. Have a Merry Christmas and um, please stay safe.